So, it's New Year's Eve, and I don't know if someone might have commented on it already. Um, We've certainly acknowledged that it's New Year's Eve, but there's something kind of curious about New Year's, isn't there? Um, In kind of a certainly interesting way, we kind of made it up that this is when it happens. And it's particularly sort of uh, stands out to me because uh, in New Zealand, where I grew up, it happened, you know, just before breakfast. Um, Our breakfast. They had New Year's. And so there's something kind of just, it's a convention. It's a, so, okay, we do that. In England, where I live now, it happened an hour and a half ago. We're supposedly waiting for a little while, though we're going to jump the gun, it seems, and uh, not wait until midnight to do it, which is, you know, a little sort of revolutionary or radical, perhaps. But there is something really important. Actually, can I just get a volume check? You hear all right at the back? Good. There is something really important about acknowledging the passage of time, acknowledging the the movement and the cycles, the flow of life in that way. It gives us an opportunity to pause and perhaps remember people and things we care about, friends and loved ones, to reflect on what's really important for us, to make aspirations, to set intentions. There's something about marking the cyclic nature of life and whether we mark it today or at some other time. It's really not so important. And yet there's a a value and a power in these kind of traditions that invite us to stop and to reflect on what do we want to bring forth in our life? What do we want to bring forth in this next period of time? You could say this year, 2016, at least by our calendar. 2,600 and something else by traditional Buddhist calendars. And around this time, with Christmas and New Year, we see a lot of celebration, a lot of happiness and joy, also a lot of sorrow, a lot of loneliness, a lot of, I think, experience of alienation and disconnection that's tragically endemic in our culture, in our world. And I find myself reflecting on the on the, the culture we live in, in terms of taking a, a moment to think about what's important in my life, in our lives, in this world, that the the kind of the materialistic orientation of so much of our culture and society, not all of it by any means, but so much seems to be oriented in a way that that celebrates consumption and sort of relies, it seems, on, on greed and on disconnectedness as a way of fueling economic activity which is supposedly in the service of all of our well-being. That's what we're told. Spend our way out of trouble. Consume our way out of economic disaster. And just keep doing it. And this culture equally perpetuates aggression and violence as ways of relating, as ways of dealing with difficulty, with conflicting needs and views. 
And it seems to me so much of that is sadly out of touch with what actually brings about well-being for us, what actually serves us, what actually leads to happiness. So New Year's is an opportunity to reconnect with what's important for us, to reflect upon that, to consider what do I want to ground my life in and what do I want to give my life to? The ways we could perhaps articulate that. I'm kind of playing with whether I can actually still read without glasses and it's marginal, but um, it's certainly easier this way. <coughs> to reconnect with what's important. This life that we care so deeply about, that has so much of beauty, so much that's precious, that's remarkable in it, is something at the same time uncertain, unreliable. Our experiences and the situations we encounter, the conditions of our lives, even the people we have contact with, not always reliable. This fundamental dimension of of life. One way that we try and handle it, of course, is through that. Our culture tries to handle it through that attempt to acquire, maintain and increase our material security at a, it seems, considerable emotional and psychological cost of disconnection and alienation from, from our real heart, from a real sense of authentic and sensitive connectedness with life. And I find myself thinking also of, in this context where we talk about refuge, what it is that may be a refuge for us in life, I find myself thinking about the refugees in this world at this time, of whom there are many. And in fact, of any t at any time there have always been many. They're in the news right now particularly because they're turning up on the, the shores of Western countries who aren't sure whether they want them there. But there have always been people whose homes, whose lands, whose countries and very lives have been, as far as they had known them, taken from them. Lost in the conditions of international politics, economic circumstance or environmental conditions. We could, it seems, even get to the point where we as a species become refugees from our planet, needing another. Let's hope we don't get that far. But it's not guaranteed to us, is it? We don't know what will be the outcome of the journey of our species, of our world. And in the context of that, in the situation where we reflect on this, we bring this to mind, it could seem a little sort of, hmm, just a moment, aren't we supposed to celebrate on New Year's? But that process of discerning what's actually real, what's going on, and, and seeing, so what is important? What is of value? What's here? Because when I'm in, that, in wanting to speak about refugees, it came to me because I was reflecting on the refuges and thinking, I'd like to speak about the refuges, but... For those who have little refuge, they also need to be named and known. The culture that we're engaged in here is a different culture than the world presents. 
and encourages us to engage in. A culture of awakening recognizes what is an authentic basis of happiness, what is actually truly conducive to well-being. And in that is founded on some principles, some understandings. And particularly, I want to speak about and just mention briefly this evening, the refuges, which many of you are familiar with, but just in this context, I'd like to name them and speak a little about them. And then I want to go on to speak a little about the process of developing, of cultivating, of how we bring about inner transformation, or at least one aspect of that, because in fact that's all we've been talking about and will continue to be talking about this week and beyond. But the understanding of the possibility of true happiness, that something more than simply temporary respite is available. This is something that's embodied and expressed in the the refuge of the Buddha. It's the first of the three gems, the three refuges that we can rest our hearts in. And I, when I come to give a, a talk at, in the evening, such as tonight, uh, on retreats such as this, I, I very much enjoy just taking a moment to bow, to offer my gratitude and appreciation to the Buddha. And that's represented by this you know, piece of metal or ceramic or mixture of those things. It's not actually the Buddha sitting behind me, but, um, which is fortunate because it would be a little embarrassing wouldn't really want to sort of uh, be talking while the Buddha was there. Um, but that represents something about he didn't have to deal with these either I've been. Um, that represents something about um, what's possible for us as human beings. If you if you look, if you read the story of his life, it wasn't an easy journey for him. You know, it's all celebrated as, wow, look, amazing guy, but, whoa, it was tough. And not just before he woke up, not just before his awakening, actually beyond that too, it was hard work in all sorts of ways. And yet there's something inspirational for me about the fact that what the Buddha represents is our capacity for all of us, for each of us, for me, for you, for every human being. That capacity we have to wake up, to know. Louder? Louder? Is, it, is it not working? It does wobble, doesn't it? Hmm. Okay. Let me know if it needs more wobbling. I'll try and wobble it better. How's that? It's pretty wrapped, but we can keep going on the wrapping. We had this last year, I believe. Okay, more wrapping. How's that? It feels like it's got a good grip on my ear, so hopefully it will stay. And hopefully, if, let me know if the ear goes blue. I think I'm all right. Yeah, I think I'm all right. Did you miss half of that? Or was it just. Should I start again? I don't really have time to. Um, We all have the capacity to live with wisdom, with compassion, to live an awakened life. And to know that is actually 
to have the basis for a different way of living in the world. And the second refuge, the refuge of the Dharma, the teachings and the practices, the Dharma Vinaya, actually, as Catherine mentioned yesterday. That sense of the the inner development and the outer way of living in the world. That this is something which gives us a vehicle and a framework for living wholesomely. Living in a way that contributes to well-being rather than undermines it. That contributes to inner and outer happiness, peace, well-being. Something that's right here, apparent here and now. Something we don't have to go elsewhere to look for. That's timeless, that's always relevant, that's always accessible. That invites us to look, to see for ourselves what's true. It isn't telling us how it is, although we might sometimes sound like we're doing that. The intention is really, let's see what's true here. Let's see what's here. And that the, the, the Dharma, um, this is some of the, the, the epithets of the Dharma, that encouraging investigation leading onwards the sense of it inviting in a possibility of something that opens in front of us that invites us forward that isn't somewhere we kind of we're trying to get somewhere and then we finish and you know we hang up our meditation cushion and go into enlightened retirement it, it leads onwards there's always more that's possible no matter what depth what breadth what wisdom compassion beauty insight we've developed, there's always the possibility of more. And it's something we can know for ourselves. To, to have our life oriented towards this, to take refuge in this, to let our life rest in this. This is something incredibly powerful. And the Sangha, the community of beings of which we are an expression and a part the community of beings engaged in this process of awakening who've said at least for these days I'm not prioritizing getting more things I mean if you came here thinking you were going to get more things you're obviously going to be really disappointed I suspect that's not what brought you here no it certainly wasn't what anyone listed on I came here to get more things didn't see it on any of the bits of paper I got anyway Uh, interested in a process of awakening. And it's a shared endeavor. This is something of the beauty of it. It's not something that we somehow do by ourselves. That offers in that sharedness of endeavor a mutuality of support. And I think speaks to the fact that we are connected. The way we feel the support of each other in the small groups as people commented and couple of occasions today in my groups alone just how hearing other people reflecting their own experience we see that universality that we've talked about but what we also notice we feel how there's a connection that is evident in the sharedness of experience that the the way in which we feel separate and different from others drops away when we see that actually what's important to us is shared and what serves our deeper well-being is not incompatible or in conflict with what serves that of others. So that what we're engaged in is for the benefit of not just ourselves, but each other, and in fact all beings, all of life. Something beautiful, 
something uplifting and letting one's life rest in that, knowing that we're held in that, equally as we're part of the holding. Because our presence and practice is part of what's holding everybody else. Just as we are held by theirs. And this is something that really is the basis of true nobility. The Buddha spoke of this. That nobility, and this was a a radical social reforming um, perspective, when he said nobility doesn't come from birth in a high caste. To be a Brahma, a noble one, is actually to do with how we live our life from our actions. Now the technology doesn't want to play games. There we are. Lots of new things going on here for me. So the epithets of the Sangha, the blessed one's disciples who have practiced well, diligently, insightfully, with integrity. These are noble beings. And they give occasion for incomparable goodness to arise in the world. I think it's something really beautiful to reflect on in terms of what we're engaged in, what we're part of here. Something that gives occasion for incomparable goodness to arise in this world. And so we're engaged in practice. We're seeking transformation. And how do we go about that? As someone asked again in one of the groups saying, well, just a moment, is this all about just accepting what's going on and not reacting to it? And, you know, um, what's the place of engagement, making something happen? And actually, a lot of it is about actually just (laughs) letting things happen and opening to that. But what we notice is that in order to be able to do that, we actually have to be quite proactive. It doesn't just happen that we can let things be that we can open to what's going on, we actually required to engage with all the habits and the patterns that would suggest doing otherwise most of the time. And so what we're engaged in here, we could call the cultivation, the development of the heart and mind. The heart-mind, as the Buddha spoke of it, citta was the word he used. And... This involves what is spoken of in the teachings and by the Buddha as wise effort, samavayama or vayama. It's the sixth limb of the Noble Eightfold Path, which I imagine many of you are familiar with. And what it involves is the determined and committed application of wisdom, of what we know to be true and skillful in the face of circumstances that there's a a kind of a commitment, a determination, and an energy, a fire, an enthusiasm required to, to manifest, to live in accord, to bring forth what is possible for us in the face of the patterns and the tendencies and the habits that arise within us and that are playing out around us in a culture that's very interested in keeping us quite asleep. Actually, that's remarkably skilled at replicating our inner processes around us. And uh, the world of media 
so attractive and compelling, not by random accident, but because it replicates what goes on in here, out there. And we have a little bit more control of it out there, it seems. So, what does this mean, wise effort? The primary effort is essentially to be awake. We've talked about that. That intention, that orientation of our focus, of our activity towards being awake. Rather than trying to make something happen, which is what we're normally engaged in, habitually, unconsciously or consciously, trying to make something happen or stop something from happening. And so far as we're engaged in that in our inner life, we easily become caught in a kind of an internal materialism where I'm trying to get more of these experiences and have less of those. And although it's more subtle or refined and actually in some ways maybe more useful than the outer version of it, in the end it's not liberating to operate from that place and that premise. And it's not sustainable, actually. Any more than our materialistic culture is sustainable on this planet and the way it's expressing itself currently. And we know it's not sustainable, actually, because we can look at our condition. I mean, how is it for you at this point in the day? Is anyone feeling a little tired? Has anyone been thinking of telling their friends at home the story of how hard it was at the meditation retreat. They made us get up at 5.30 in the morning and they made us practice all day, relentlessly. even told us to practice when we thought it was a break. You know, it's interesting. If you would explain it to a friend who'd never been on a retreat, what you actually did here. Well, we came in and we sat down on a cushion for you know three quarters of an hour. It was quite a soft cushion or in a chair. Didn't have to do anything. Then we got up and we wandered back and forth pretty slowly. In fact, they said, don't try and do it quickly. You know, nothing. It doesn't matter if you don't do it much, but just, you know. And then we sat down again. We stood up, stood around, stood around doing nothing for a while, sat down for a while, had some food. It was good. There was plenty of it. Then we did all that sitting down, doing nothing, and standing around nothing again. Boy, it was hard work. <laughs> They're not going to quite believe us, are they? How could that be hard work? So part of what we might notice is that there's a way we're putting pressure on the situation to try and make it something happen. There's a way in which we're trying, we're leaning, and we can notice it sometimes in the in the the kind of the the tensions that we hold or that we feel and we encounter in our body, where we're kind of leaning towards or away from certain things, certain ways things could play out. before I came in I was speaking with Catherine about the amount of material I thought I had here and wondering having not done it in this configuration before particularly whether it would fit and uh, absolutely no way so uh, I'm just processing that at the moment hmm. but I'd like to tell you a story which I don't have time for but I'm going to tell you anyway <laughs> the story involves a couple of characters called Toad and Frog. You may have heard of them or you may even have heard the story. 
But on one occasion, Frog came to visit Toad and was greeted by his friend. Hello, you know, come on in. And, and Toad said, I've got something to show you. Come with me. And took him out into his back garden. And there in the back garden were these beautiful flowers in rows, beautiful colours, magnificent, delightful. And Frog looked at the garden and he said, Wow, that's beautiful, Toad. Oh, I wish I had a garden like yours. And Toad said, You know, you can. I've got some seeds, you just need to go and plant them and you can, you can have a lovely garden like this too. But I need to tell you, it'll be lots of hard work. So, Frog was very excited. He took the seeds and he ran back to his home and went into his back garden and he dug up the soil and he planted the seeds and he watered them carefully and then he sat down to watch <laughs> and wait. And he was really excited and looking forward to his garden. But after a little while, nothing had happened and he thought, maybe they don't know what they're supposed to do. So he said, seeds just whispered down close to the ground, seeds, you can start to grow now. Nothing happened. So he said, in case they hadn't heard him, seeds, you can start to grow now. And still nothing happened. And he actually started to get kind of frustrated. He said, I don't know what's going on. Seeds, grow now. And Tog, ah, Tog, Toad <laughs> came running down to the house of Frog, Frog's house said, Frog, Frog, what's going on? I was just telling my seeds to grow. He said, oh, Frog, said Toad, you can't yell at your seeds. They'll get frightened. They can't grow when they're frightened. Poor old Frog. He was so sad. His seeds weren't growing and now he'd scared them. So he thought, what can I do? I know what. When I was a little tadpole and I was afraid, my mother used to Tell me stories to make me feel less afraid. So, I, so Frog told stories to his seeds all through the night. But nothing happened. In the day he thought, oh, maybe I'll sing them songs. And he sang songs to his seeds all through the day. Nothing happened. So he read them poetry the following night. All night he read them poems. And the next day he danced for his seeds all day. And nothing happened. He came to the end of that day. He was exhausted. He said, you know, these must be the most frightened seeds ever. I give up. And he lay down to sleep beside the seeds that he'd planted. And he slept for days. He was so tired. And he awoke to the sound of Toad's voice saying, Frog, Frog, wake up. Frog woke up. And he looked and Toad said, look, look, there and there. There were these tiny little green shoots just breaking through the earth. And Toad said, See? Now you too will have a lovely garden. And Frog said, Yes. But you know, Toad, you were right. It was a lot of hard work. How much time do we spend yelling at ourselves, trying to get ourselves to be a certain way or to make a certain thing happen. Or kind of trying to talk ourselves into it, cajoling, encouraging, even trying to sort of 
make ourselves feel better about what's happening in the hope that that's somehow going to move it forward. Practice is a lot less hard work when we stop trying to make it happen. To see that this process of cultivation, of development, arises through something that's very organic. And gardening is a great metaphor for it. Yeah, we need to till the soil. We need to take care of what's growing in the material of our heart and mind. To see what's helpful there and what isn't. But the seeds of wisdom and compassion are within us already. And all they need are the conditions of warmth, of moisture, of space. And these basic qualities or capacities we bring of being present with kind interest, kind-hearted, interested attentiveness. These are the conditions in which the seeds of our heart and mind can grow, can flower, can bear fruit. And so this is the the foundation of what we're engaged in. That conscious awareness of, that presence with, that attentiveness to, that mindfulness of what's actually here. Without being attached to the outcome, to the results, to what happens when I do this. And then we can just breathe out. And together with that, we're given, we're offered a framework for engagement. To look at what's going on. In the context of wise effort, Samavayama, Vayama, the Buddha spoke of the four great efforts. That which we direct our energy towards. And he articulated them as such. He said, the first great effort is to give rise to wholesome qualities which have not yet arisen. The second is to sustain and to strengthen wholesome qualities which have already arisen. And then the third great effort is to to not give rise to unwholesome qualities which have not arisen and to abandon, to not strengthen or support unwholesome qualities which have already arisen. So we can see that the giving rise to and supporting or sustaining what is wholesome and the letting go and not or not supporting and not giving rise to that which isn't wholesome and beneficial. And I want to unpack this a little bit. It's a simple framework for that really underlies everything we're doing in practice. The underlying premise of it, however, is something really important to acknowledge. This human heart and mind is something malleable. It's something that can be transformed. That according to what we support, that is what we experience. According to what we give our support to, that is what becomes stronger in our heart and our mind. And we need to be conscious about what's going on in order to see what it is that we're supporting and what it is that we maybe wish to choose to not support. And the basic question isn't about whether qualities that arise within us are wholesome or unwholesome. It's not about being good or bad in a moral sense, or according to some view of morality, but 
And it's not about whether the experiences are pleasant or unpleasant, but about whether they actually lead to happiness, to peace, to well-being. This is perhaps something maybe obvious in one sense, but it's interesting to kind of put it in counterpose or to contrast it to the, the, the four great preoccupations of the, un, of the conditioned mind, the preoccupations perhaps of our, our world, which is the, the often unconscious or blind pursuit of experience that is about the giving rise to and the sustaining of what's pleasant and flattering to us and the avoiding or removing so far as we can, of what's unpleasant or unflattering to us. And that what we call pleasant, we somehow associate as good. And what we call unpleasant, we tend to unconsciously associate with bad. When people say, I had a bad sitting, and I hear it often, there is no such thing. There's also no such thing as a good sitting. But it tends to come down to, I had a good sitting, I had a bad sitting, because the thing that happened in my sitting that I'm remembering, there was probably a few others as well, but the thing I'm remembering didn't feel good or didn't result in me feeling good about myself. So either it's uncomfortable because it hurt or at some level I didn't feel good with the conclusion I left. I was left with about me as a result of all of that. And that's what we tend to call bad. And the opposite of, I had a good sitting because it felt pleasant, it was lovely, it was enjoyable. Or as a result of the fact that I was quite calm or focused, and that's what I think I'm supposed to be doing, I felt good about myself as a result of it. And sometimes they go together. It both feels good, and it makes us feel good about ourselves. But pleasant and unpleasant are unreliable frameworks for well-being. Wisdom suggests to us that if we substitute wholesome and conducive to well-being for pleasant, and we substitute unwholesome or conducive to harm for unpleasant in that way we orient to experience, that that will actually give a basis for real transformation and real happiness. So we cultivate, we develop this quality of presence, of wakeful, mindful awareness so that we can begin to observe firsthand and directly for ourselves what happens when qualities are present or absent in the heart and mind. Not because some should or shouldn't be there. Whatever's there has its own reason and basis and conditions for being there. But so we start to see what's the effect when there's something arising for us. Because we tend to have, if we look at our behavior, we tend to have views that underpin the way we act, suggesting certain things are wholesome and useful or beneficial that actually aren't. And we tend to have views that certain things that are wholesome and beneficial are not. We might not think we have those views, but when we watch our actions, that's what we're actually enacting some of the time at least. For instance, the idea that... um, Generosity is something that leads to impoverishment. That if I give away what I have, I won't have. It's an idea that holds us back from giving sometimes. Not always, I'm sure, but sometimes. I notice that it holds me back sometimes. 
And that's not true. Actually, when one gives something away, we're not impoverished. We're enriched. The idea that kindness is going to make us vulnerable or appear weak or foolish is sometimes what prevents us from extending ourselves. But it's not true. When we offer kindness to another, it in fact strengthens us. We can have the idea that aggression and violence actually serves to protect us or to advance our what's important to us. We probably wouldn't think any of those things are true. But if we notice any of those tendencies arising in us, to hold back from generosity, to act from anger, to refrain from expression of kindness that might be possible, in some way we are expressing or enacting that we do believe these things don't serve. So, the way it works in practice is that we start to see, so what's it actually like? What's it actually like when this quality is present? What actually happens? Because if we pay attention to what goes on for us when we're feeling selfish, when we're feeling, no, I don't want to share what I have, what we notice what's very clear is this tightness inside. I might have more things because I kept them and I didn't share them, but something inside me actually hurts more. And oh, when I notice that, I think, oh, actually, I want to work towards letting go of that tendency. It doesn't mean I can just do it and just, okay, I'll, you know, infinitely, you know, generous. No, but oh, I want to move in that direction. It becomes clear to me. Just as when, and I'm using this as a particular expression, you know, we see what happens when we, when we're, acting on when we're experiencing something beneficial, wholesome, when there's a, a thought of kindness towards another. We say, oh, that allows a sense of expansion in my heart. We might be afraid, well, if I like them too much, then I might end up, you know, sort of not being able to take care of myself in some way. But actually, it's not like that. That's not actually the experience. When we see something as beneficial, we naturally start to incline towards it. It's not that we have to make that happen. When we see the suffering of inner patterns of aggression or reactivity, we naturally start to want to find a way to be free of them. We can react to them by rejecting them or judging them. That's not so useful. We need to be really compassionate there. But at the same time, there is a natural way as we see where the real suffering is, that we start to look for what will allow us to release. And what's important in this, as we've said, to not identify with the qualities that arise within us that we see, that they're not ultimately personal, and yet we need to take responsibility for them, because this is what's happening here. To take responsibility for cultivating the wholesome and for not supporting, not cultivating, that which leads to suffering. To see that experiences, that qualities, that the, these qualities that arise in us arise according to conditions. They're not separate from conditions. This means that it doesn't quite make sense to identify with them because they're not really ours. But at the same time, it shows us the way 
to bring them forth. Because we see which conditions support this heart and mind. In what way? When something that we really want arises in our mind, and we see the mind can get gripped hold of this, I want this thing, I want this thing, I want it to be so, I want it to be just this way. Whatever it might be, that we want to be in a certain way. That when we focus our attention on that, the sense of I want and the, the contraction, the tightness, the, the pressure amplifies, intensifies, whatever it is. But if we take the attention to the fact that anything, any situation is ultimately not something that will be permanent, even if we can get it or have it or produce it, it won't be forever just contemplating that aspect of it, it's like, oh, rather than attending to the apparent pleasant element or desirable element, we attend to the fact that, oh, it's not something that will last forever, because nothing does. Then desire begins to soften, begins to open, begins to subside or dissolve. We see, oh, the way I pay attention affects how the mind arises. What arises in the mind is transformed by that. When we give attention to something that we think is wrong, that we judge as bad, whether ourself, whether our neighbor, whether in the world, easily anger and the movement towards aggression or violence arises. But if we pay attention to the suffering that's involved in whatever's happening that's harmful, then actually much more likely to arise is compassion, both for the person who's, or people who are most obviously suffering, but equally perhaps for those who might appear to be the cause of the suffering. And that doesn't mean that we don't also have the capacity to courageously address that by seeking to bring it to an end, but that we might understand it's not because those people are bad people, but simply because they're blind and they too are suffering, out of compassion for them too. One might wish to bring about the harm, bring about an end to the harm resulting from someone's unskillful behavior. And so again, we can just see a movement of what we're attending to within the same experience And the qualities that tend to arise in us change. Starting to learn those relationships. And there are many more that I was going to speak about and I won't because I've already gone over time for what I planned to talk about. Where we can see, but we'll speak more about these over the days, I'm sure. So, the sense of where we give our effort to, what we give our effort to, to have both an underlying or a kind of a broad sense of, of aspiration, of what it is that our life is dedicated to, what it is we want to rest our life upon, and what it is we want to give our life to. So that that quality of resting is a kind of more the receptive quality of just resting in the the capacity we have to be awake 
And I'm sure for all of you, there have been moments when you were awake over these days. Maybe not as many as we might have wished for. But there have been moments when we were really here and present, sensitive and awake. And what that means is we have the capacity to be more and fully and deeply, profoundly awakened in our life. To let our hearts rest in that capacity, to deepen it. You know, I say with aspiration, go large. You have that expression here? Go large, you know. Full, complete awakening for the liberation of all beings. Yeah. Let the heart open to that possibility. And yet, let the intentions be simple, concrete and direct. Just, okay, what's possible for me here and now? What's doable in this situation? You might say, I want to develop generosity. It's my aspiration for the coming year. That's beautiful. And maybe I'll say, and every day, or every week, or once a month, I want to give something away. So there's something specific that I know I can do. Even if it's just a penny in a charity box in a shop. That's my minimum contribution. But I can probably manage two pennies. And to really honour the nobility in you, in your companions here, the, the stream of nobili- nobility that is running through the midst of humanity in this world, that runs not in the direction of suffering, of exploitation and degradation, but towards well-being, towards uplift, towards peace and freedom. And that this is something we can give ourselves to. We can give our life to. And this offering is fundamentally what transforms our life. Even while we're still struggling with the various challenges of it all. But that sense of, let me give my life to this which is noble, beautiful, uplifting. And ultimately, in this life, what makes a difference is not what we get from it or out of it, but what we give to it and how fully we give, in a way, this life back to itself, offer our life up in that spirit. Not giving it away because we're included absolutely in what it is we offer it to. So let's sit quietly for a few moments together.
May we all deepen in our capacity to rest in the simple unfolding of this moment, just as it is. May we grow in our capacity to bring forth that which is beautiful, noble, wholesome, and conducive to well-being. And may we all come to know the awakened heart embodied in the midst of our lives for our own welfare and for the welfare of all beings for all of life and this world. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.